Hello and welcome to Candela. I'm Alan Schaller. Faden Papamichael joins my co-host Christopher Hooten and I on the show this week. Faden is a Greek cinematographer and director known primarily for his collaborations with directors James Mangold, Alexander Payne and Wim Wenders. He was nominated for both the Academy Award and BAFTA Award for Best Cinematography for Payne's 2013 film Nebraska. And his other credits include Walk the Line, 310 to Yuma, This is 40, The Ides of March, The Descendants, Downsizing and Ford vs. Ferrari. We hope you enjoy our conversation. You can find us on Instagram at Candela Podcast and Faden at Papa2. On with the show. Welcome to Candela. I'm joined by Alan Schaller. Hello, Alan. Hello, Christopher. And today we have Fedon Papamichael with us. Fedon, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Good. So we, we find you today. I know you've been back in Greece, but you're in Georgia today. Is that right? Uh, yes, I've been uh, holding out in Greece since March and uh, have uh, just traveled to Georgia where um, I will be till Monday and I'm off to Morocco and then off to Los Angeles. So it's been quite, uh, despite the COVID situation, it seems wherever I go, they, they start a lockdown. I was prior to that, I was in Slovenia and um, uh, been bouncing around and actually still able to uh, work. Um, which has been good. I actually squeezed out um, a whole little independent feature in Greece recently. We, we shot, uh, I shot and directed a film, uh, a thriller in Greece called Light Falls that uh, I'm editing currently as well. And then, uh, yeah, we'll see. But uh, in Slovenia, we had about 12 uh, of a crew, of a, a crew of about 120. So about 10% of the uh, tested pre-production and then, Text period, positive. So, yeah. yeah. Well, it's all going on in Morocco at the moment. We spoke to Larry Smith, a DP. I don't, I'm sure you know him a little bit, um, but he's he's just on a feature down in Morocco as well. So, it seems to be the place for semi post COVID shooting. Yeah, I guess there's uh, you know wide desert plains that we can isolate ourselves at. So. Mm. Chris and I have, have said that we're not going to talk about COVID as much as possible, but I just wanted to ask you: Do do you think that film sets will go back to normal? Uh, anytime soon or do, or or do you think that this is going to permanently like have you guys found ways of you know doing the same job of less people and do you think it might stick like that uh well it's not necessarily less people i mean i know that you know slightly different approaches uh with creating different clusters where art department comes in and then they evacuate and then the camera where the actors come in and so you don't have everybody working simultaneously there's definitely different ways of doing pre-production and meetings and scouting and you know some even do remote directing uh our company here in georgia uh Ankeny films we just did um, a, a completely remote shoot where the directors were uh in london and uh and we were online with them and they were saying, okay, move that thing a little bit over there. And no this, and, way. Uh, it's pretty I crazy. Can't believe that. <laughs> I, I was not, I was not here, but, uh, I was told it was, it was, I mean, it worked, but it's, it's so, but, uh, you know, I think things will eventually, I mean, I don't know how soon, but let's say this, an effective vaccine distributed by March, I could imagine that we're going to go back to our regular working 
habits. Uh, but I do think other things will permanently stay affected and never really quite return. Um, one, like one of my concerns is just how comfortable people have gotten to take, you know, in films uh, via streaming and uh, I mean, myself included, you know, during lockdown, being isolated so long in my house and the countryside, just no access really, even if I wanted to, to a movie mm-hmm. theater. Um, I mean, in Greece, actually, yeah, and, uh, we're fortunate because we have the summer theaters, which are outdoor theaters, which is quite nice. Uh, so mm-hmm. those were still running, but, uh, you know, obviously that's not possible in many places of the world and all, not all year uh, long. So, uh, you know, I know everybody upgraded probably their system, got a nice, I got a nice 55-inch OLED, you know. Um, so you get accustomed to the comfort of, you know, seeing at a higher yeah. quality your, your uh, you know, your content. And uh, I, I don't know really if only big event films where it really warrants maybe going to an IMAX theater or some spectacular uh, visual, spect- you know, uh, event will will make you leave the house. So, I mean, yeah, not yeah. to jump too far ahead in this, but like Trial of the Chicago 7, of course, was shot originally. I mean, when I shot it, we shot it for the, you know, for the big screen. I mean, I used Area Alexa LF, I used Anamorphics, uh, expanded the uh, kind of the same combination I used on Ford versus Ferrari, all this, you know, uh, with in mind, uh, having a theatrical, uh, and, uh, after Netflix, uh, purchased, then, you know, I'm, I'm in a way thinking, well, you know, it's too bad, although there, there were some theatrical and they did make some prints, uh, but of course very limited. But on the other hand, I'm thinking this kind of film and, you know, it's, it's timeliness and, uh, ur- you know, urgency to kind of get the film seen by a lot of people. Uh, Aaron really wanted it to be out before elections, you know, really, uh, made it streaming, uh, ideal scenario for this kind of film, because I don't know how many people would have gone seen a little political drama and, mm. and gone to a theater for that. And I, I know a lot of people have seen it. <laughs> Uh, on Netflix as it is now, just because I'm getting responses from all over the world. And, you know, so it did find yeah. probably a much a broader audience and, and under these circumstances. Yeah, well, I, I guess maybe there's probably a bit of resistance to some of the kind of aspect ratios that you might normally go for, you know, a cinema scope kind of size when people are just viewing on their phones, if that becomes, you know, increasing trend. Right. But then again, maybe that's just, the, the you know, a, a symptom of the technology being the way it is. And once we're all used to having enormous screens or, you know, advanced projection systems, it will, the, the cinema experience will live on. It will just be different. But no, it does seem like it's like COVID just, there was this trend, wasn't there, towards home viewing. And then it's just kind of completely put it on fast track. But um, you're right, though. I, it's a shame there hasn't been more outdoor cinemas because it's, it's such a beautiful thing to be on, like a rooftop screening or in a little amphitheater. Yeah, it's actually, it's, you know, you still get the the, the, the the social experience and, you know, sharing it with an audience, which I think, you know, for some films, it's very important to, you know, uh, experience them with a crowd. Um, and, but, you know, on the other hand, I mean, higher quality projectors, prosumer pro- projectors and, and much, much better, uh, monitors are becoming much more, you know, yeah. cost efficient and, and people can afford to really upgrade and, uh, you know, so the, the, that, that line between your cinema experience and what you can do in your, 
home theater uh, is, is becoming narrower. So, and, and just the habits of the society in general. I mean, my kids, I have 12 year old twins. I mean, they're just accustomed to, you know, I said to them, do you want to watch it in the movie theater? You want to watch it on your iPad? Do you want to stay at home, watch it on our big OLED? I mean, they're like almost prefer, you know, watching it on a smaller device. They can multitask. It can do other things, you know, so that whole discipline of taking in the story and, and really just doing that and being focused on sitting through, uh, a longer content, uh, Film is 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 really changing with a new generation. I mean, all, most of the things they watch are much yeah. much shorter format anyway. So it's you know, and I make them watch some classic movies. I made him watch *The Man Who Would Be King* by John Huston, which is you know a adventure film I really liked in their age. And you know, it's it's different storytelling mm-hmm. also. It's just the character development takes longer, and you know, or a film like I uh, like. Trial of the Chicago Seven. I mean, you have an introduction of so many characters, and I mean, not that it's a necessary film for a younger uh, generation, but still for you know teenagers and tweens. I mean, it's definitely uh, uh, something that could be fascinating to watch because it's very timely. It's very sort of relevant with what's still happening uh, um, in our society and in America right now, and it's it's in a way. I mean. Aaron wanted sort of not just a period piece, but give it a sort of more contemporary treatment and what he did also with the music and such and, you know, and show that it's still, uh, you know, sort of an ongoing thing and it's not just a his- yeah. history. When, 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 when you show your kids uh, films and you talk about films, do, do they realize that their dad's pretty cool and, and that he's done some really cool stuff or, or do they go, oh God, not another <laughs> Well, film, my son, uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, they know I make, they know I make movies. I mean, they've been to sets and, um, I mean, do enjoy that. Uh, but, uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I try not to, you know, overwhelm them with, uh, but I do try to show them, uh, you know, what I consider quality films that are classics and, uh, you know, try to open their eyes to just different kind of, content that they normally wouldn't get exposed to. I mean, I, it's not just my kids who are still fairly young, but I'm also surprised, you know, often talking to film students in the master classes, you know, just how many, you know, like the French New Wave. I mean, sure, most of them have heard of Godard, but, you know, they've maybe seen Breathless or, you know, the really, or Buñuel movies or Truffaut films or mm. Kurosawa films. And, uh, you know, which uh, I, I know work for that generation, it's just uh, not really channeled towards them. I mean, then they always go, Give, make me a list, you know, and I make them a short list of, you know, I go, well, start with these 10 films that you just have to see, you know, you just have to have seen. Mm. Um, and then, you know, if those interest you, you know, then check out more Godard films or more, uh, you know, Werner Herzog films or Fassbinder films, you know, if you like that. Yeah, then, uh, I, I, I feel like this... I mean, I think like, I hate to talk about kids now. I still feel like a kid myself, but like they're so kind of reared on TikTok and short videos now that actually they'll just get exhausted by that. And, yeah. you know, teenagers, once like they're in their twenties will probably be like, I'm going to check out like Jean-Luc Godard or whatever. And probably actually because it's so different, yeah. it feels so far away from the kind of craziness of these times. I actually think there'll be like a, quite a renaissance in terms of people finding that stuff. Um, what's also funny though with, yeah, it's interesting with well, films, that, that, though, that, um, 
like there's this thing and I, I'm, I'm the same with this to some extent is that like we'll we'll sit and binge watch like a 10 hour series because <laughs> it's in one hour chunks but then you you say to someone you know oh do you want to watch a film and they're like oh, is it what's it two and a half hours oh, i don't know if i can do that it's really odd someone said that to me recently they were, uh, i said to them have right. you ever seen lord of the rings and they said no uh, it's too long I was like, you, you. I know the fact that she binge watches like Game of Thrones. Just like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's like, come on, it's not too long. It's it's just like it's it's just a slightly different format. It's very strange. I guess if I guess if it's broken up into you know under one hour sections, you can. I mean, I rarely, I, I just don't uh, know. I, I just don't find myself with a time where I actually can f- watch a whole series. And I know there's some good ones out there. I just watched uh, the. Queen's game, but, but I, I wouldn't have under normal circumstances just because I'm more at home and, uh, you know, um, but, and I do get caught up in that as well, but uh, it's, uh, you know, they, are, they have all their little individual um, storylines that, that fit into this, um, I guess, one hour format. I mean, people are watching mm-hmm. also documentaries. I, I know uh, the last uh, dance that, uh, Michael Jordan thing was, you know, watched by a lot of people. And uh, so, but yeah, I mean, uh, taking a, a feature film is, is definitely requires a, a, a bit of a different mindset. And um, I am worried that, uh, you know, younger audiences don't just don't have the patience really for that. It's kind of a field that I was in. I mean, I've not, you know, not because I'm snobbing or anything, but I just haven't really done. I mean, I did Huntsman Winter's War, but I haven't really done any of those you know, your typical Marvel or uh, sort of uh, superhero films and not just, I still, you know, love dramas uh, with strong characters. I mean, uh, I mean, they can be action. I mean, Ford versus Ferrari in a way is, you know, has a lot of exciting uh, uh, racing action and is certainly not boring. I mean, my, my, my son enjoyed it and, but you know, it's, also has a lot of dialogue, has a lot of characters, has a lot of complex relationships, uh, uh, you know. So uh, I'm just hoping that the, the, those kind of films will still be made and not just made by by, by streaming yeah. uh, <laughs> services, not just Hulu and Netflix. They thing, survive, you know, the yeah, studios still take a chance and allow allow a budget that is decent enough where you can make. I mean, Trial of Chicago 7 was a relatively low budget, you know, um, it was uh, done for just a bit over twenty um, million, and we had a very tight schedule, thirty-five days, and you know, a lot of characters and uh, period piece. You know, so pretty involved and quite challenging. Uh, therefore, yeah, it's, it says a lot to the the kind of the whole idea of squeeze budgets that. I remember going into watching Ford versus Ferrari that part of the reason I was excited to watch it was because of the budget, because it's so rare these days to get an adequately budgeted big idea unless it's, uh, you know, superheroes. I was like, just, just knowing that I'm going to be able to sit down and watch something with like, you know, the, where the production design and the sets are going to be next level is quite exciting and also quite rare. You're only going to be able to get to do that two or three times a year. So that was, um, I mean, I think it's definitely a dinosaur, uh, in terms of that, that, that kind of film being made for that amount of money. I mean, where you don't have a superhero, uh, you have, you know, two 40 year old white guys who were <laughs> in the sixties, you know, um, and you know, the movie was uh, of course well received and, 
was nominated for Best Picture, made decent box office, but it's not like a huge moneymaker for, yeah. for Disney or Fox, you know, at the time. Uh, despite its, you know, worldwide success, it's not definitely not considered a, a unsuccessful film. But financially, I mean, if you really probably compare it to Fast and Furious, I mean, or, or, or Avengers, I mean, it's not, not a, yeah. definitely not a big moneymaker for studios. So, and it's a high risk because it's just like, I mean, luckily it worked and the people really loved it. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it's just untested grounds. Like, can we still spend a hundred, over a hundred million dollars on something that's not a superhero that's not like teenagers are going to go oh, see God, multiple so. times? And, <laughs> yeah, I hope so too. I hope yeah, so well, too. Well, we may as well talk about the cinematography of Ford versus Ferrari a little bit. I mean, I know you've probably talked about it to death a little bit over the last year or so because it's you know been in the in the promotion cycle but um it'd be a shame not to touch on it and uh i guess the i was just really intrigued to think about the how the driving scenes come together and like i think often when people think about stuntmen they think about the car that's being filmed um but i'm always fascinated by the guy who's driving you around with the camera because Man, that guy has not only got to be operating at speed and doing everything you need to do to drive a car, but he's really got to be crucial in getting you exactly where all your camera operator exactly where they need to be <laughs> to get the shot. And I don't know how you kind of how I you. I mean, he is he is the one he's the one who's actually coordinating and 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 verbally communicating with all the other moving pieces. So because the camera car. Uh, you know, is your camera position. So uh, although we're, we're traveling at hundred miles an hour and so is every other vehicle in, let's say this setup, uh, you know, the distances and, you know, coming up upon somebody is stopping inches away, having a car switch over and another car cross through. That's all very precisely choreographed. I mean, you know, as you probably know, in Ford versus Ferrari, we have, um, no complete, complete CG build cars. These are all race cars that we build. I mean, then not really race cars. They're picture cars that, uh, we made look like race cars, which had some limitations because it takes a long time to really develop a, a precisely handling race car and fine tune the suspension and all that. So, I mean, this is, um, you know, it was very challenging and then driving them in, in the rain at night. Uh, and doing these precision moves. And we just found that most dynamic stuff is not, you know, the way you see races on television where it's long lenses and you really don't get a sense of speed, you know, even in Formula One, unless, you know, they cut to the cockpit uh, view, uh, you don't really get a sense of, uh, you know, unless you're inches away from it, on low on the tarmac with the wide lens and, and really feeling the spray and the, of the tires and also playing a lot of it from the point of view, from the perspective of the driver. So that was very important to us too. Uh, and also how the driver, how let's say Christian Bale is playing Ken Miles, how he's physically reacting and uh, interacting I mean, he's actually in a pod car, which he's sitting in the cockpit. There's a stunt driver like that's mounted to the back on top or in the front that's uh, driving, controlling the vehicle because that would be too much to ask. Although mm. Christian did get some driver's training and is quite, he also races motorcycles. And, I mean, is a very capable driver, but, uh, but still, you know, physically he's experiencing 
all the G-forces and all the sounds and the vibrations. And, you know, when another Ferrari comes inches up to him, I mean, it's, it's not a green screen or it's not like a LED box projection, uh, where, you know, a bunch of grips are shaking the car, <laughs> you know, and, and a guy's standing there with a Hudson sprayer. Like, um, so, I mean, it's, 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 it's also, you know, crucial, I think for performances to, you know, have them, uh, interact with, uh, all the elements and, and, and I mean, Christian, of course, great actor and can sell, sell, sell it also. I mean, we did do some close up, some very specific moments. We had like two days on, on stage where we picked up very specific moment, very close ups. Um, but the rest of it, I mean, he was being thrown around in this, uh, insane car and really you know he gets a sense of how dangerous it is and uh and and so the audience does as well i mean that was our main goal to to communicate to the audience to make them experience what it was like to be in one of these you know 60s cars that are not so sophisticated that are super loud and uh have really not a lot of safety uh, provisions and uh you know, so, and I think we did that quite successfully, but that, but that was, that's the thing with Mangle, James Mangle, always, we like to, you know, be physically close with the camera. Even when we do close-ups, we're on a wider lens. So it's something that I think, you know, the audience senses, you know, that you're, you know, it's not so removed and, you know, you're right there. Uh, and that applies for action, but it also applies for drama. I- uh, you know, for dramatic moments again, you know, and, and, and on, on trial of the Chicago seven, I mean, at a similar approach where I do have these close-ups, of course, it's a large ensemble cast and the way we had with Ford versus Ferrari, no action, but, you know, they're sitting in the court. And again, I didn't want just to isolate, uh, the characters and have just these close-ups. And I, I, I again, used the same lensing, the, the Panavision anamorphics with the LF because, it gives you an intimate close-up, but it also uh, doesn't isolate them and and, and keep uh, you know keep the environment around them uh, present. I think um, you know an audience knowing that those cars are actually that close, and the fact you know that there is a real life danger involved in what they're seeing. I think it, it definitely is more engaging than even the most epic battle scene you can ever see in a Marvel film, where it's like you know no one's actually in danger here. Of course, and 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 I th- I really hope that that way of filmmaking is is because I mean, you could have CGI'd the whole thing probably. I, I don't. Of course, of course. Um, but there is some a different experience, isn't there? In 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 knowing that there's some stunt guys or you know or the actors themselves actually putting something at risk. That's why Tom Cruise is so. You know, something everyone says about Tom Cruise, you know, whether they know anything about films is, oh, you know, he does his own stunts. And I think that's that's one of the Yeah, it does, it does count for something massively. Definitely, yeah. Of course. I mean, when I was a kid, I, I knew Steve McQueen does his own stunts, you know. So when I watched the, him do a stunt, I'm like, that's... A Steve McQueen. Crazy. Yeah. I mean, it's cool. He's doing <laughs> that himself. And, uh, I mean, you know, he did uh, Le Mans, the film, and... Uh, he ended up because he actually had a injury, uh, a foot in, a leg injury, but he, he was initially gonna, um, uh, uh, drive all those cars. I mean, but they raced all those cars, uh, for real at actual race speed. Like we couldn't go actual race speed, but they had actual race cars in the moment where they were doing 200 miles an hour down the Monsanto Strait. And, 
you know, we were getting up to like 110 miles an hour on the straightaways and 90 in the curves. But yeah, still, that's, that'll you know, do it. That's enough. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's enough. I mean, I, I was, you know, in, in some occasions, I mean, of course, in the pursuit vehicle, you know, we had a, a Porsche Cayenne. We were trying different cars, um, but it was hard to keep up with them. Um, yeah, there are very few stable cars. Because yeah, we have a, up at 150 plus. Yeah, we have higher center of gravity. Yeah. And then, you know, typically the Russian arm, if you have, you know, so your crane on it, it's, 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 it's throws the whole vehicle off balance and the G forces on the arm. So we actually had this thing, an elevator rig, which is basically the truss where the camera can travel vertically up and down, but it doesn't have that arm that's swinging. And, and then, you know, really, um, we created like another race car that was uh, like a race camera car. It was basically very low center of gravity based on the chassis of the other race cars we built. They were four GTs and had all the pipe rigs in there. We could mount little remote heads and little fixed cameras. And, and those cars could, uh, that, that vehicle was able to perform the similar to the cars that was uh, chasing or leading now. But uh, yeah, it was um, very challenging. And like you said, it's not just one driver. I mean, this is, you know, you got 20 guys out there that are, it's a ballet. They all have to be very coordinated and sync. And, um, uh, it takes a lot of communication and, you know, we have a great second unit. Uh, yeah. I mean, the guy driving the camera car is operating the camera on to some degree. He's an extension of the camera in, in, in terms of the placement of it. Of course. I'm just saying. Yeah, it's yeah. also interesting. I was just thinking that like you've seen with full first row, you've got a film about people trying to create the perfect car while at the same time behind the scenes, you're trying to create the perfect camera car. And then you've also got a film about people trying to make something creative while they've got the pressure of Ford executives there. There you guys are trying to make something creative while you've got a... Uh, <laughs> Disney, presumably, knocking it, hanging around the edges and behind the camera, trying to keep you on track to make something that works for them. So it must have felt uh, quite a few similarities there. Yeah, I mean, actually, I mean, we were we were noticing the same kind of similarities uh, working on this movie. I mean, we are kind of like this Shelby team dealing with a corporate, uh, you know, the studio per se, and us being on a budget <laughs> and trying to build these cars and uh and you know uh you know the cameraman being like the chief mechanic and the director being like carol shelby and then you got i mean it was uh and 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 the same kind of you know strive for uh this collaboration and achievement of excellence uh of course we weren't putting our lives on the line but you know we're just trying to make this product similar to uh, what the movie's uh theme is and and, and, you know, me arguing and, you know, talking to the director and trying to come up with the best things. And, and actually somewhere I read in some interview that, that Christian and Matt Damon, uh, Christian Bale and Matt Damon said that it took, it took a little bit of inspiration from my, mine and, uh, James Mangle's relationship when they saw this <laughs> sort of, you know, talking about things and that, you know, uh, trying to, uh, line up shots and decide, you know, what to do. And, uh, you know, they've, 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 they felt, uh, you know, they, they, because we're, you know, it's my fifth film with Mangold and we have, uh, you know, it's sort of a shorthand and we're kind of like brothers. So 
uh, it's not like a, a lot of polite filters. Uh, it's just well, like, yeah, it, it sounds like uh, no matter what the budget of a film, there's all there are always issues, you know, challenges to be uh, always compromises. Overcome. Yeah, like in the sense when you know, if you make a film on a low budget, I'm sure there are some problems, and and people at that level might feel, oh, if only I had you know, 10 times the amount, everything would run so smoothly. But I re- there must just be more challenge, more and more and more and more challenges. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, you know, my gaffer, uh, Rafael Sanchez, that I've done 30 movies with, he's he's done, for example, I mean, uh, all the Pirates of the Caribbean. And on the first one, you know, I mean, he goes, this is the biggest low-budget film I ever worked on. I mean, it's just, it's, it's never <laughs> enough money, you know, like, uh, I mean, just the demands and the tasks and the sets and the pre-lights and the equipment and the crew. I mean, you suddenly you have a thousand crew. I mean, um, I always tell young filmmakers, you know, uh, who want to, you know, in Europe, because I I work in Europe, uh, the movie I just made was very, very modest budget, 25 day shoot. And of course, a much smaller crew. And I go, it also gives you an incredible amount of freedom and flexibility. You can be much more reactive to, uh, you know, oh, look, something's happening here is like an incredible mood outside. Let's break off this scene. Let's go shoot that exterior scene. And then we can come back in and, you know, it's not like you don't have to move, uh, you know, base camp and you don't have to bring all the actors or, you know, I mean, it's like they're all there normally every day anyway. And it just gives you a lot of freedom. So I tell them, you know, uh, while you have limited me needs, it doesn't mean you, you can't be very creative. Uh, uh, with the mm. way you make a film and, uh, you know, of course you can't do Ford versus Ferrari. I mean, you have to conceive of something that that's doable in a, in a, uh, smaller package, but, uh, there's a lot of, uh, you know, great thrillers, great horror films, great stories, dramas, um, that you can do simply. And it's kind of liberating not to have this big ball, uh, of chain and, uh, on your leg. That's just really sometimes. Uh, just comes by the pure size of the production. And, uh, I mean, you know, I don't know how many hair and makeup and wardrobe people. And then it's like, oh, you know, if you want to change something, it's affecting all these departments. And, uh, you know, then the caterer is ready to feed a thousand people. I'm like, can't we shoot a little longer or can we break for lunch earlier? You know, catering is not never going to be ready. You know, it's whereas sometimes you have to stop its ideal conditions and, or, you know, I say, let's, let's maybe we can break an hour early for lunch and then we can uh, come back and, you know, anyway, it's just very hard to be, uh, have that flexibility uh, on these big shows. With um, the film Nebraska, um, that looks like a kind of the opposite to me of uh, something like Ford versus Ferrari in terms of how it's made. I don't know. Yeah, that's it, the kind of film I'm talking about. I mean, yeah. with Alexander. Although, you know, we did normally, typically we have 50 days on these Alexander Payne movies, but these are the kind of movies I'm talking about that I'm worried about maybe falling by the wayside because, you know, it was those, I mean, we did a bunch of them uh, like sideways and uh, descendants and that typically they were about $20 million. They were Fox searchlight movies and, you know, we never really had to rush because um, they were done inexpensively and uh you know we still were able to get great films made and have great cast attached and um but nebraska was amazing and refreshing and lovely and intimate and you know you got 
your two actors, basically, in most scenes. It's Will Forte and Bruce Dern, and you're on, on the road actually shooting in actual locations. Nothing is... I mean, the bars are real. The people you see in the bars, when we go scouting and Alexander sees the bartender, he, he wants to cast the actual person. You know, we mix in uh, amateurs with our actors. And when we do the road trip, when they drive basically from uh, from uh, Montana to 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 go to uh, Nebraska, it's 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 the actual route. I mean, it's we're actually with a very small reduced crew in a motorhome. That's a motorhome from about Schmidt that Alexander kept. And, uh, you know, it's the actors in the car, us, you know, five, six people, and we're doing this little road movie. And it's great. I mean, that's really refreshing and fun. And I always say, really, all you need to make a movie is, you know, the actors, a, a sound guy who can also hold the boom of, a camera system that can pull focus and a DP operator. I love, you know, Nebraska, I just operated all of that. If it's not multiple cameras, I'm always on camera. And then the director right there next to you, no video village, no tent, no playback. You know, you can glance over, you know, in the old days, directors didn't have video system. I mean, they would look over and after the take and the cameraman would give them like a thumbs up or, Thumbs, you know, let's maybe do another one. There's a focus <laughs> issue, but it was, you know, you didn't have to study the frame all the time. I mean, I, I tell directors, you know, this is the place to be, be next to the camera. It's great for the actors. When you cut, they look up, they want to see a human face. They don't want to see, you know, the, I mean, ideally they want to see the director's reaction. They can tell, you know, and uh, they don't want to look at the first AC going like, yeah, it was good. <laughs> <laughs> you know that actually makes me think of I was watching the other day um, on the Lost in Translation DVD um, Sophia Coppola's film there's a yeah. there's a little making of called Lost Lost on Location and uh, and the, the way that film came together is kind of what you're describing you know they're there on a crossing in Shibuya and Lance Accord's just cradling the camera and just following her around with it like a couple of people yeah. and then they want to get the master of um of the Shibuya crossing with Scarlett Johansson walking across it and they're talking to the line producer and he's like right we're going to go up to that Starbucks and everyone on the crew is going to order a coffee so it seems like we're customers and then we're just going to shoot it out the window on the sly quickly and you're like this is an enormous iconic film and to see it and it just, it looks so fun that it's come yeah. together that way rather than, you know, locking down the location, clearing out, bringing in all the extras. Like there's something quite nice about it. Yeah. I mean, we, we did the same thing recently. We just went on a ferry boat. Uh, we need, needed a, a sequence that took place on this boat. And because of, you know, the permits and clearing and safety and Corona, and then we just bought tickets and I said to the actresses, stand over by the rail. And I sat there and had, straddled you know the the camera and you get some people running kids running through and all that like just accidentally just getting real great uh extras in their acting and then you know just moved in and do, did a couple of close-ups and you know got off the boat and had it mm. so i mean i love stealing shots and you know nebraska i mean we you know we would just pull over wherever i mean sometimes Bruce Dern had to stop for a pee break. He'd say on the radio, I got a pee. And I'm like, let's pull over here. I would point the camera. You know, we had a little camera mounted to the front of the motorhome. And I just created some a master. And those are in the movie. And they're like some of the yeah. iconic shots. You know, it's just Bruce standing next to the 
so we're like taking a leak and uh, <laughs> it came great, great little moments in the movie. You see, I, I, I do street photography, right? So, uh, yeah. So that, that, that form of filmmaking just appeals to me way more than the idea. I would love it if Chris and I just one day just went out and made a film just in this kind of way, just like going around. Yeah, stealing and shots. That's, that's your, your default shooting. Just stopping, <laughs> stopping where we wanted. Well, you can do it. I encourage you to do it. Uh, I mean, you, you know, you've got to find the right story and have a few characters. And I mean, you can't, you know, yeah, you can't just uh, you can't flip cars and, you know, but, uh, but uh, there's a lot of films, a lot of stories you can do that way. And I, I always encourage. Uh, young filmmakers, you know, choose maybe not to spend so much money and time in film school, but yeah, you know, because some of these schools, and I talked to a lot of them and master ties and stuff. I mean, but they're spending 60 grand a year, and uh, you know, I don't know, 20, 20 in the class. I mean, add all that money up, and you can make probably a couple of features, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah, you're honestly preaching to the converted. Yeah, we're always like, get out of film school and just get out on the streets and make something. But yeah, yeah, I think I'd be interested to hear you guys talk about because speaking about Nebraska, so Alan's obviously a, a big black and white shooter, digital, but always shooting kind of natively in black and white. Um, with Nebraska, I believe you shot that in color and then. Kind of well, we transfer shot, decent. I mean, I shot digital. That wasn't really the monochrome um, uh, Alexa available yet. But also, I mean, the fact that uh, I shot color, it enabled me, it allowed me to do some things with um, uh, with the use of color. For example, you know, I told the production designer, like, if you paint this house red, I can make it darker gray or lighter gray or also with the wardrobe and I even put color gels on the lights at times like I would shoot up these HMIs which are kind of blue anyway and add blue uh, just to light up sort of some atmosphere in the sky but I discovered you know by grabbing onto the blue in the DI I could intensify it uh, and as you know and I mean when you have your primary colors you can sort of uh, affect those areas uh yeah, sure. Uh, and, and, separately. And it was really great because I had this light. And yeah. if it wasn't color, a color movie, I'd be like, oh, it's too much. You know, this blue glow behind the building. But now I could just go in and <laughs> make it go away completely. I can grab the blue. I can just make it go away or I could bring it up. So it gave me a lot of extra, you know, I, I, I kind of wanted, I did very little of that. I mean, I didn't, I wanted to um, not over treat the black and white and yeah, not yeah. over complicate things. But, um, Skip Kimball, my, my colorist had shown me, we took some movie from the eighties that had like half the face was orange and the other blue. I think it was, uh, you know, some, uh, you know, in the eighties, they, they used a lot of color and he was flipping keys. He was showing me black and white. He literally was flipping the key. Um, <laughs> just by grabbing the tripping. colors and, and I go, oh, okay, well, that's, that's good. You know that's a good additional tool to have if needed. Um, well, um, what what was the decision to shoot um, Nebraska in black and white? Um, was it just a kind of emotional response to the content that that you know to to the landscape or the area you're in, or or, or was it because obviously back in the day black and white was not a choice; it was a necessity. Um, but now, obviously, we have the choice of the two. So it's and you don't often see. Uh, productions being done in black and white like that. So well, I think it'd be interesting for people to hear the, when the Alexander process. When Alexander first uh, mentioned this movie, that was 
you know, 15 years almost prior to when we made it, he always said, I have this little black and white movie. It always existed in his mind as a black and white film. I mean, uh, you know, he is from Nebraska. He understands that world pretty well. I think it really fits the mood of the story, sort of the reflecting the loneliness. I mean, there's not, it's, uh, you know, this vast land, it's sort of its graphic value, which sort of isolates these characters. Yeah. It's a lot about uh, lack of communication or um, uh, loneliness. And so I, f- I, thought, I felt it was very appropriate. And of course, uh, we only prepped it and conceived of it in black and white. Uh, nice. Yeah. When, when Paramount, when Paramount took over, you know, the, the, the financing, we were actually greenlit at 17 million or something. And then uh, they said to Alexander that this meeting and they go, it's great. You know, we support you hundred percent and you can cast, we'll give you freedom and the cast. And, uh, and he goes, great. And I'm going to do it in black and white. And apparently, <laughs> I mean, I was in the meeting, but I apparently can imagine, like, yeah. all the faces dropped and yeah, I've, I've seen that before. And then that movie almost like it went away. I mean, and we, uh, it slowly crept back up because, <laughs> you know, they do, Love his movies and Descendants was coming out and making good box office and you know um, but they came back not quite to the same number we had so we went from fifty days to thirty six days or something because it was black and white and the reason was like we can't sell it to certain markets like HBO won't show a black and white movie and then certain markets oh. won't buy black and white I'm, movies I'm, yeah. and things like that and I kept saying like who I'm surprised are? HBO wouldn't show black and then and white, what like yeah. HBO doesn't show Raging Bull or or I mean uh, yeah what, what, what the hell's going on it's funny because like you know with, <laughs> yeah. with with Alan's work like uh, you shooting in black and white is a, is a is a bonus if anything it it helps things to stand out amid all the colour whereas in film as soon as someone mentions black and white a studio just sees it as like nope this is going to turn everyone off it's just two completely contrary things. Well, it's going to turn off a certain amount of a certain audience, you know, but um, I mean, once the movie had its identity and, you know, went to Cannes and Bruce Stern won Best Actor. And then, I mean, I must say in Paramount's defense that they really loved it. They really embraced it because they were always talking about there's also going to be a color version made and which we also did make. And then, uh, you know, they have a, a streaming uh, service also that they actually, I remember on one Sunday they showed it in black and white and then let's say from seven to nine and then and then they showed the color version, which I was glancing at while I'm having dinner. I mean, I really didn't, uh, we didn't get involved that much in, in the color version, but my color is Skip Kimball. I said to him, just do whatever you want, make it look cool, you know. <laughs> and he actually gave it a very nice treatment and... Um, and I kept looking over and my wife goes, it looks better. <laughs> then she's like, wait, why is there a massive blue light on the horizon though? What's that doing there? <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, so um, they kept just kept saying some people are going to only buy in color. So, you know, we couldn't shoot. I mean, I tested when I tested, I tested, you know, black and white film stock, of course. Um, and then color film stock. And then, uh, then the Alexa and then i I, I processed and scanned the black and white and set the contrast mm-hmm. and the look I wanted. Uh, of course, in the DI, it was going to be, you know, digital. Already we were dealing with digital cinema releases. And so I knew it would go through a DI process anyway. And then I told Skip, like, match, uh, match, match the Alexa and match the color stock 
to this, uh, how this black and white now looks. And he was fairly successful. I mean, I must say, I mean, I had it hard. And, you know, ultimately I, I had Haskell Wexler who shot America, America, and, you know, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf has two Oscars for, um, black and white cinematography call me and go, Faden, you know, what's, what stop did you use on that Nebraska? You know, so that was, uh, a good test, you know, uh, to pass. I mean, um, but, you know, we did spend a lot of time. We projected Paper Moon uh, fiat, uh, on a film projector and A-beat it with ours. And, you know, just to look at the degree of film grain that we were dialing in. And, you know, but you forget. I mean, we've become unaccustomed to it. But, like, how alive and how grainy those black and white films are if you watch them on the film projector, you know, mm. and the projector movement and the texture and the... Change over real markings, which we were even going to put on RDI, and uh, you know, um, it's 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 quite a, a different experience. I mean, we watched uh, Last Detail with Alexander, um, uh, which was sixteen millimeters. Just how grainy it is, and you know, my kids <clears throat> probably haven't seen the movies that are that grainy on, you know, certainly not on a film projector. And I'm wondering, you know, if they saw it now, they would well, think, think the something's TV's wrong broken. with it. <laughs> yeah. 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 But I add grain to everything. I mean, I do, I do, I mean, I'll never talk a director out of wanting to do film. I mean, unless it really like we're at a location where we just don't have a lab support and there's, it's just too risky to send this yeah. film and fly it around, get it to a lab. And, um, but I, I do feel like I'm monuments man with Clooney because he likes to shoot film, of course. And, we mixed it. I mean, we did film for all the day exterior. He also likes to shoot fast. We I talked him into doing uh, digital for the night work uh, because I said I can work with less lights. And uh, and so we, we comboed it. And, and if you see the final project, the final film projected, I mean, again, that was Skip Kimball. I mean, it's, I think, you know, we really found our, our little cocktail of, you know, contrast and a lot that, so film lot and um and and the addition of grain that that it's i mean in any case i mean most you're rarely gonna go see something as a film projection i mean i ended up in new york in a smaller theater seeing joker um uh, i didn't know i mean it just happened to be actually a 35 millimeter film projection i go oh that looks great like did they how did they they really mastered that digitally uh because i uh and i didn't i didn't even know and then i went home and i looked it up and it was shot you know um large format i think alexa 65 and uh you know and and then i looked up oh the theater was actually a film projection uh, right, but I go, wow, they really mastered uh, that, you know, it had, I go, oh, they even stole like uh, my idea of putting ch changeover real markings on and, and a little <laughs> added a little, pro uh, uh, gate movement, projector, uh, flicker and movement, but it's, it's definitely, uh, you, you, sort of, but you know, how many people really are conscious yeah. of that? Yeah. We've, we've exactly. actually got yeah, um, like, Lawrence Scher coming up on the podcast uh, in, a, in a couple of weeks, so we'll be, we can ask him about that. Yeah, we will. <laughs> yeah, he was he was trying to. I mean, you know, they were definitely inspired by Taxi Driver yeah. and stuff, and sort of that that grittier uh, palette and, um, and 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 grain, and so yeah. But yeah, ask Larry um, how much of that, how much grain they actually added to 
the digital version uh, because like I, I never saw a digital projection. I only saw, like I said, that film projection. Sure. Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, one other film I'd like to touch on, like if Nebraska was in some way a bit audacious in, in terms of its being black and white, more audacious, I think, is downsizing in that it's a very weird movie. And but Alexander Payne obviously did an amazing job to get it backed because it's a strange movie, but it's got it's fully realized and it must have taken a hell of a lot to realize a story like that. And uh, I, I can't imagine the amount of challenges you must have faced, but it's, it's a, it's a fascinating film. And I guess, you know, in the history of cinema, when it, when there used to be this thing with small and large, it used to be done a lot with like in the Charlie Chaplin days, there'd be overlays or there was a lot of forced perspective, but I get the impression that as well as some incredible VFX, there was just a lot of working with, pretty bonkers props that were like enormous props and things scaled down. And yeah. I mean, again, uh, you know, it's obviously sort of a con high concept, which is not uh, Alexander's typical language. Uh, but again, although it's set in this surreal concept environment, uh, it's still like an Alexander Payne movie. It's about the character. It's a guy from Nebraska, you know, is just trying to downsize, they can't buy the house they want. So suddenly like this possibility opens up and stuff. So, you know, it was, it was tricky because, you know, it was much more technical, of course, than his other films. And, and, and if it wasn't about being downsized, it'd be a very simple movie um, that would be very much in line with his other films, but, you know, having to deal with, uh, uh, you know, like, explaining to him because he's so inspired by the actual location and the reality of things. Like I told you, we go into a bar and never wants to change. It's not really his dogma, but it's just his aesthetics. Like he wants the actual artwork that's in the restaurant, you know, that mm -hmm. and then we always get into issues with clearance and who's this artist and some guy from Ola and like nobody <laughs> knows. And, um, and the studio goes, you gotta like get clearance on it. And it's like, <laughs> it's like impossible. Anyway, so in this, it was, of course, different because we'd go somewhere and then our VFX supervisor would go, well, over here is going to be the wall and then over here is going to be this. And Alexander, I, I know it was much harder for him to sort of grasp that conceptually. Like, you know, he likes to look at things and make choices. And and so it was it was tough in that sense. And, you know, uh, Stefania Cella, I mean, we did build some great absurd sets, you know, like that downsizing chamber that was based like Alexander's input to her was make it look like the inside of a microwave, uh, you know, uh, just, uh, uh, you know, we had some fun with, with the props. And, yeah. We shared um, a, we shared a clip from the yeah. B-roll actually on our Instagram that kind of blew people's minds a little bit. I think of, um, when Jason Sudeikis, characters brought in, in a little, a little box and, and it was an enormous yeah, green screen, I, I saw uh, that like clip, yeah. jostling thing to try and, Recreate the I was pretty yeah. involved, yeah, because that box was, uh, you know, on this hydraulic <laughs> uh, rig and it was there like 40 feet up in the air and uh, like holding on and this, uh, and then, you know, we have, a, <laughs> just we have insane. a cable, we have a cable cam rig like just flying because it's also, you know, it's getting integrated into this panning PV shot where Matt's looking at somebody carrying them into their class reunion. So it was, it was, you know, quite technical. And again, you know, like we're not big fans of that. Uh, Alexander, I don't think is either. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm 
sure he's very happy he finally made that movie he was trying to make that movie for a long time but because of the concept and the cost it was just like tough doing an alexander pain movie that's like also expensive um and uh you know so um but uh, but uh, um i'm sure he he kept saying next movie i'm going to do <laughs> one where you know three people are sitting at a cafe and in Rome. <laughs> well, you know, so definitely um, happy to not shut one yeah. box, but well, I, no, I don't think we'll be rushing into any kind of uh, Alexander Payne, big VFX movies uh, in the future. <laughs> well, I was, I was, I was going to say that. I shouldn't say that because all kinds it of might happen. happen. You I never know. Days. Everyone, I've read some things online about how tough it must be for the actors when you're in the green room, you know, like trying to, with someone giving them a direction, like, you know, I imagine with like the Hobbit, it would be like, right, there's a massive dragon right there. Okay. And you got to look up at him in fear. Uh, I, I imagine that it's also really hard for you guys, uh, you know, to actually. Oh it's like, yeah. It's how- very hard to, to set, to create the right light and motivate the right light because, you know, you have, a sky that's going to get put in. You've got to figure out the sun position, you know, oh, the clouds, God, the that. shadows, the contrast, the harshness. You know, but now, I mean, we're moving on to newer technologies and I'm not that, that familiar with it. I mean, the, the obvious one being, you know, big LED panels that you project. I mean, you feed in, you generate the footage before, uh, but uh, and you get the, even the correct interactive light, the way, you know, Chiba did it on gravity. And I mean, we did a little bit of that on Ford Versailles, but for car stuff, for example, you can light them, Jesus. you know, the night interiors and you actually can photograph LED panels because the LEDs are tight enough spaced. And, and then you drive past a red billboard and you're actually getting that red light at the right time. You don't have a guy like panning a, a baby with a red gel, you know, and hoping that, when they composite it later, that it makes any kind of sense. Um, but, you know, there's also new things now where they have these virtual sets that you look at it, composite it already live while you're working on it. Uh, I forget the company, but there's uh, some company in Spain that I saw that demo reel and some tests. And, uh, you know, they basically have an actor in not, not even that big of a space not even interacting with like some actual set props and everything is, is, you know, comes from mm-hmm. the gaming technology and all that. And it's, it's, it's pretty amazing, but I don't know. I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not rushing forward to both no. experiences. I mean, I always say like best cinematography, and I don't mean to put down a lot of movies, uh, uh, but like best cinematography should kind of be awarded to, uh, a DP where it was shot where you can actually go to that location after the movie has been, you know, like, and stand on the edge of the cliff and look at those mountains, um, you know, where you can actually go, Oh, I want to go to that location. I want to go to where Lawrence of Arabia was shot. I want to, I want to check out that desert. I want to go to the Atlas mountains where man who would be King was shot. And, uh, so yeah, I, I know what you mean. In Ford versus Ferrari, of course, you know half half of you know we do it did build all the pits. It's probably three hundred yards long with all the pits, all the cars. When the big takeoff, you know, the beginning of the race, it's all real people running to the cars, getting in actual cars, pulling out, and everything uh, on that side is 
a set, a constructed set with extras in it, four or five hundred extras. And then, but of course, you know, the, on the other side, you have the grandstands and we didn't build those. I mean, that's all CG. It's all CG people, you know. So, yeah, it, certain things you just can't do. It's just not realistic, you know, uh, mm. not yeah, that makes me think of like the way I was yeah. with uh, with with awards. The way I always think of it is, you know, we have these terms: best best film, best cinematography. I always think it's interchangeable with most in those situations. You know, the award for acting tends to go to most acting who is doing the most emoting on the screen, and it's also somewhat, you know, sometimes with cinematography, it's the most cinematography. You know, it tends to be the films that are really kind of bombastic visually, but like you say, sometimes it's the ones that are maybe don't. Do you know what I mean? Aren't so kind of like showy with it, but still kind of incredible. Well, I mean, look, Avatar won <laughs> best cinematography. I mean, that's something we talk about, you know, and it's a very dear friend of mine, Mauro, who was the DP, but, you know, also Robert Stromberg, who I think also won for production design, who's a VFX supervisor that I had worked with uh, uh, before he also became designer. Now that makes more sense somebody who designs yeah. that landscape and those mountains that he actually is also production designer, right. For uh, creating a world like that. But then, um, uh, you know, in terms of cinematography, I mean, sure, it's technically complicated to integrate your, uh, you know, there is some uh, live action in it. There's some people, but once they completely enter that world, I mean, in that case, it's all, mm. uh, done in, Post. So, um, yeah. you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, then what, what is it? Is it like, um, do you create a new category? I mean, we're talking about this, you know, and in the Academy and at the American Society of Cinematography. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, I don't know where you, you draw the line and then does it become, it's because it's not really just the effects either. Is it, uh, you know, a new category? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's really interesting, actually, to, I mean, to think about that. I mean, there must be, there must by now be at least a couple new categories that have to be created. There should be a category, actually, to like delineate. Yeah. Them. Yeah. I mean, there was a category for black and white and color. Maybe it's time to have one for. Yeah. You know, but. I like that. It's, it's, there's so, so many VFX uh, often that are, you know, not noticeable. And I mean, you know, you see these VFX demos, and like even on a Fincher movie that. It's just layers, you know, of stripping leaves off of trees and adding a little bit of atmo and, and snow and, um, uh, you know, that you wouldn't assume, like I wasn't aware that that shop was treated so heavily, uh, he heavily uh, with the effects. Mm. Uh, but till somebody at uh, the effects uh, supervisor showed me, like, you know, they have online, and I don't know, you know, um, and they, they show you the shot and then the layers and layers and layers, how they affected it and, you know, of course, we do some of it in the DI, but not really. Uh, you know, so it's it's uh, it's it's going to be rare. I mean, I'm sure on a show like The Crown, or and there's a lot of you know, there's a lot of augmentation, a lot of things going on. You know, that I'm probably not even aware of. I'm assuming it's real because I'm old school and I'm naive. <laughs> there's no <laughs> such thing as truth anymore, so <laughs> we're we're past that now. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I do love, I do love when, uh, uh, I mean, uh, when I'm not planning for any VFX. I mean, the last movie I did, I mean, it was an amazing location. 
Um, and it's just great being able to photograph it and knowing this is how it's going to be. It's the way you capture it at that moment, at that light. I mean, sure, I might do a little bit of color treatment, you know, contrast, but that's okay. I mean, we do that in photography also. I mean, even back when we were printing, I mean, I would choose different paper to print yeah. on, you know, there was Ilford, I, I can't even remember, number five, like higher con, higher sensitivities, same with the film stock. I mean, but, you know, of course you affect the look and you create different uh, visual effects uh, uh, that are desired that you think are appropriate for the story. But but it's nice when you're making those decisions on set and you as a craftsman are making these choices. Mm-hmm. I'm going to shoot this now with a light like this, with a shadow cutting across like this. Um with uh, not using any lights, just bringing a little bounce card here. I mean, all these choices that you're kind of then committed to and 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 happy with. And uh, yeah, hmm. well, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think I, I think grade, grading is uh, you know is a necessity with all kind of visual art forms. And uh, yeah, the difference between VFX and reality is uh, is definitely a. Uh, there's a massive gap there. I, I, I get, I hear a lot from purists who say that you shouldn't even edit your photos. You, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't tweak contrast. You shouldn't do that. And at that point, I just think, oh, come on, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's all part of the look. Well, but you know, I, I when I when I was, I started as still photographer, and you know, we had our our black and white nicks, and I mean, it was really the choice of paper, maybe, and how long I expose the paper and process to develop it. But, but other than that, I mean, I shot mostly slides like Ektachrome, Kodachrome. You know, we didn't treat those. I mean, I rarely scanned one of those in. I mean, it cost a fortune back then. You had to go and get it scanned and get an internegative and you, then you could do something. Like that. But, you know, it's just I projected my slides the way they were shot with no treatment. I mean, you just put them in the carousel and that's mm-hmm. how you showed them. Nailed it. <laughs> you know yeah I w- so you had to do it you had to really nail the exposure you know there was not a lot of latitude on those uh yeah. films and uh yeah but uh you know same with drawing now in my so i have twins right i have a boy and a girl they both love drawing my son draws on paper with aquarelle pencils and watercolors and and my daughter draws only exclusively on her ipad and mm-hmm. does amazing things and you know he puts her down and goes this and that and you know but she does all the shadings and all that it's just a different process yeah david hockney uh uses ipad now a lot doesn't he, he paints on ipad so it's yeah pretty crazy no way yeah <laughs> i mean the tools she has are are very similar to what he's doing you know uh but she can erase it she can strip layers add layers uh you know mm-hmm. i mean once you add the water and you smear your aquarelles and your pastels I mean, you're kind of, that's it. You know, you either <laughs> screwed it up or <laughs> it <laughs> looks good, again. you know. Yeah. I, I remember hearing yeah. a, um, an interview that you, you gave where you were talking about uh, the way you like to, you, you refer to yourself as kind of like a classic cinematographer and that you don't like to uh, push, you know, like have really, um, what's the word, a super stylized, uh, you know, in terms of using light and stuff. Um, and I thought that was really interesting because uh, I, I love doing wacky stuff. The wackier, the better with light. And uh, I, yeah, I think you said something about how you don't necessarily use backlights and front lights and, and using unrealistic light situations that wouldn't exist in real life. And I, I just thought that that was. Yeah, I mean, I about. try not. I mean, of course, if the story 
calls for it. I mean, look on, on Huntsman and Winter's War. I mean, it's, it's a fantasy world and, you know, there's some more stylized lighting and the forest and, uh, you know, things I wouldn't, you know, but most of the, my, my films and, you know, more naturalistic and I like naturalistic lighting. I like light to be more or less motivated. I mean, of course I cheat things sometimes and if it looks good, you know, uh, but you know, I won't shoot a scene outside where every person is backlit, you know, just because it looks better, yeah. you know, although they're facing each other and the sun obviously is on this side. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I kind of struggle with that. I mean, I'll cheat him a little bit. So he's not maybe full on front, although front light also can, you just got to embrace it. So I try to, you know, have a sort of a logic to my lighting approach and then, but I also don't want to overpower necessarily a movie and distract too much with the lighting, I guess. That's what I meant in that interview by saying not too stylized because, I mean, I don't want people coming and saying, oh, that movie looked great or, you know, I loved your lighting on it. I'd rather have them come and say, I love that movie mm. and uh, As a whole, the characters yeah. were great, you know, and then uh, I, I'm afraid normally if somebody comes at the end of the screen and goes, look great, actually meant the movie is not good because <laughs> so focusing if on the that. movie was really great then they wouldn't they would just come and say great movie you know really loved the movie which you know in nebraska people really liked the movie but also i mean i know it looked great and it served the story and the photography reflected the mood of the characters yeah, and, sure. and you know they also then will say it looks great too in black and white you know but first they go oh my god i laughed and it reminds me of my uncle you know as uh alzheimer's and you know and the, i grew up in the midwest and i'm telling you you know and same like with descendants people who lived in hawaii they were like oh you know this is really the first time like it really captures what it's like and it's not just like the tourist pretty version of hawaii you know you got uh we got all the same issues you know traffic and homeless people and uh poverty and um mm. I love The Descendants. It's such a lovely little film. But um, it's funny, yeah, you say you want people to like the film first and foremost. And I always think the, the inverse of that is uh, sometimes you ask someone if they like a film and they kind of go, well, it was shot beautifully. And I'm like, oh, okay, so you didn't like the film. You you, you yeah. like the way it looked, but you're actually kind of bored by the film. And yeah, I, you, I like that you're saying the opposite. That Well, what yeah. are you going to say? I mean, sometimes the screening is over and, and you were, you know, your friend made it and you're worthy of wife and you go, what am I going to tell him? She said, tell him it looks great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But no, I, I see your point about like, it always makes me think of when we spoke to Jeff Cronenworth thing that he always said that stuck with me is that like, you know, people always remember the shots of someone running down an alley in their backlit. And he's like, but you know, it took me a really fucking long time to light that person when they're just sat at a kitchen counter and no one remembers that, but that was the hard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard not to do stylized lighting. It's much harder. I mean, I remember when we started at Roger Corman and, and Janusz Kaminski was actually my gaffer in a few of those movies. And, you know, he was much more stylized. He was much bolder and he still has a, you know, much, uh, uh, you know, typical. I mean, he plays with shafts of light and, you know, he loves, he enjoys mm -hmm. it. Um, and, and I was more influenced, like at some point, you know, we had fun. We did like, you know, we saw Storaro do Last Emperor and we played with colors and, but you know, then I would see like Sven Nikvist do something and I go, Oh, it's so simple. And you know, so I started doing that and I realized, Oh, I'm definitely getting less attention suddenly. 
you know, people are not paying attention to. It's just not so flashy. And, uh, it's, it was harder, much harder to make somebody look good and make it look good and not use, you know, the long lens and a bit of atmosphere and a bit of backlight and a kick and a bounce off of this and a flare and, uh, you know, just very subtle lighting and, mm. um, you know, and it's, it's, it's a whole, uh, you know, it's, it was a whole learning curve I had to go through because, you know, when you start off, I mean, you kind of default into, oh, it looks great and just making every shot kind of look good, you know, and that's why it's often hard for commercial, um, people who work mostly in commercials. I mean, it's one thing, you know, to create 60 seconds of just amazing imagery, you know, but like you have to go out there every day and, you know, a hundred day shoot and when it all cuts together in a one and a half, two hour project, like has some consistency and appropriate follow through on everything and yeah, not getting seduced by it's that consistency. That's making one thing look great. And it's hard. It's hard to maintain, uh, you know, the light on a commercial that you only need that great light for, you know, a few minutes. And when you do your setups, it's not like a long dialogue scene where I'm doing 16 pages and I have to do it over three days, like exterior mm. and deal with this, you know, the sun moving and the clouds and the wind and the laying out and planning the day and how many like Ford versus Ferrari, it's all exterior, the pits, the whole Le Mans race. And, you know, every morning it'd be the shadow. So I would do the dusk scenes and this, and then we break for lunch and the afternoon we do these scenes because for some you know, it's just planning all that and doing it over oh, weeks and weeks. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a different, <laughs> mm. different challenges, you know, and, um, I think yeah. I'm going to stick with stills. <laughs> it's great stills, you know, I mean, I, I, I love stills and I've, uh, but yeah, you're only capturing, you know, one sixtieth of a second at the right moment at the right time. And then you're, you're, you're free to go have your beer and you don't have to <laughs> exactly. worry about it. Exactly. You don't have to worry about the sun setting suddenly behind that or going behind that tree. Well, if it does, that can offer something everybody. It's fine. I can, it's like, it doesn't matter. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks so much for joining us today, Fido. I realize we've, we've kept, kept you for longer than uh, we said we would, but we yeah, are really, really great to talk to you. That was a pleasure. I've not seen, um, I've not seen the trial of the Chicago seven yet, but you know, I love me some Aaron Sorkin. So I'll, uh, I'll look forward to catching that. Well, uh, I hope you enjoy it. It's very different. Um, uh a lot of people sitting in the same places. I, I love that. Honestly, I'm, I'm a dialogue guy, so Perfect. I can just have two people in a room talking to each other for three hours and I'm happy. Yeah. To see. <laughs> All right. Well, great. Uh, well, I hope you enjoyed and thanks for having me. Yeah. Always a pleasure. Um, we'll see what's next. Yeah, definitely. Catch up on the next one. <laughs>